Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Iran Threat, What to Expect in 2023. Please welcome Dr. Peter Brooks, Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. Thank you, Catherine. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Club Center and our event on Iran Threat in 2023. I don't know if you caught this in the news this morning, but almost on cue, uh, there's news about the fact that the U.S. and Israel are having major military exercises, all the main exercises. And I think that's probably an effort to signal to Iran uh, that despite the fact that the United States is, has challenges in Asia with China and North Korea, as well as uh, in Europe with Russia and Ukraine, uh, that the United States uh, feels it can step up and tend to issues in the Middle East as well. There's a lot of ground to cover this morning, or as I said, this afternoon in an hour or so. Um, so there's a lot of issues on Iran and the threat and different variations. But we decided in this event to focus on three issues. Uh, the Iran nuclear program, uh, Iran's support of terrorism and proxy groups, and for something a little novel, uh, Iran's growing defense relationship with Russia. Uh, joining us today to discuss these issues are Andrea Stricker and Jim Bullis. Andrea is an expert on nuclear weapons proliferation and illicit containment networks. She has extensively researched Iran's nuclear program, including its history, proliferation efforts, and diplomatic agreements. Prior to joining the FDD, where she is now, Andrea spent more than 12 years at the Institute for Science and International Security. The good ISIS, right? Isn't that right, Andrea? Yeah. I was, poor people, they were they were ISIS before ISIS, right? So I think they had to change, what is their Twitter feed to at good ISIS? Um, and she is the co-author of five books on nuclear proliferation. Sitting next to me is Jim Phillips. Uh, Jim is a visiting fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. He's a veteran foreign policy specialist who has written widely on Middle East and security issues and international terrorism. Since coming to the Heritage Foundation in 1979, about the time of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, right? The Iranian Revolution. Really? Right, there you go. He has authored dozens of papers on Iran, its nuclear program, and use of terrorism, and has testified before Congress on Iran's nuclear challenge and other Middle East security issues. So with those brief introductions, I'll turn it over to Andrea for some uh, some thoughts on Iran's uh, nuclear program. Well, thank you all for being here, joining us, and to Heritage for hosting. It's great to be here with you, Peter and Jim. And thanks for allowing me to join you remotely. So what to expect on Iran, particularly on the nuclear program this year? I think a few things. Uh, first, a more dangerous situation as Iran nears the nuclear threshold more temptation to break out of its non-proliferation obligations. Uh, of course, more global and not just regional destabilization efforts by Tehran as it arms Russia against Ukraine with missiles and drones. And a truly awful situation in Iran as the regime executes its young people for protesting and demanding their basic human rights. But on the nuclear front, I, Iran's current status is that it has not been observing the terms of the nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, since May 2019, and it withdrew altogether in 2020. After trying to negotiate the deal's revival since entering office in January 2021, the Biden administration appears to recognize that the accord is not viable any longer. President Biden in November was uh, 
caught on camera talking about how the deal is dead, but he said that he won't announce that it's dead. Uh, he didn't say why, but we can speculate. It's likely because the administration is keeping the deal on the back burner in case the protests in Iran die down and the regime wants to conclude a deal. But the administration has yet to explain how it makes sense to provide billions of dollars in sanctions relief to regime for an accord that is technically defunct and soon expiring. And we see what's happening with Iran's nuclear program now uh, as a warning what, of what happens in a few years time if the deal were in place. But it would be a worse situation then because of the regime would also be flush with cash to pursue malign objectives. So the fact is whether you agree with Trump withdrawing from the deal or not, the approach pursued by President Biden hasn't worked. Tehran's program has galloped ahead while the administration has been trying to convince it to revive the deal. Under President Biden, Iran enriched uranium to the highest level ever, 60%, which is 99% of the technical effort required to make atomic weapons fuel. It made uranium metal, and that's a material used in a nuclear weapon core. And it's now operating more than 4,500 of its fast advanced centrifuges, thousands of which did not exist prior to 2015. Uh, and, and the R&D for those machines was permitted under the deal. It's also cur curtailed the International Atomic Ed Energy Agency, or IEA's monitoring. And I work with the good ISIS uh, still to analyze quarterly IEA reporting on Iran. The latest data from November tells us that Tehran has enough enriched uranium to make weapons-grade uranium for six nuclear weapons in three months. We estimate a short timeline of less than six months for Tehran to be able to explode a crude nuclear device in a demonstration test, which for all intents and purposes is all you need to show that you've established nuclear deterrence, um, even if mounting a weapon on a missile would take longer. The IEA has also not been able to have eyes on Iran's advanced centrifuge production since February 2021, and the regime could stockpile just a few hundred of its fastest model, the IR-6 centrifuge, for example, and use it at a secret site to break out of its non-proliferation obligations. Thanks to the information seized from Tehran by the Israeli Mossad in 2018, we also know that Iran dispersed its nuclear weaponization activities in 2003 and put them at both civilian and military research sites. Their status is not known, and, but we do know that they planned to centrally coordinate the activities, um, even if they dispersed them. Much can be done on the nuclear weaponization front via computer simulations. As of 2003, the regime still had several bottlenecks in their weaponization program but they may have progressed in those intervening years. All that kind of work be, would be carried out at the most sensitive facilities by only a few people, and it would be a difficult target for intelligence agencies, to say the least. Moreover, any effort by Israel or the United States to try to bomb Iran's program or intervene in a breakout would need to be sustained over some time, and there's no guarantee that it, it would succeed. So in short, the motives and the temptation for Iran to cross the nuclear threshold are growing. It's diversifying its pathways to breakout, hardening its nuclear assets underground, and making the program a more difficult target. So what do we do? Well, the Biden administration should be shifting gears in a major way. 
away from diplomacy in the JCPOA and announcing what both Heritage and FDE call a plan B, uh, a comprehensive strategy to fundamentally roll back and coercively deter and destabilize the regime at a time when it is at its weakest at home. This would require reviving our oil sanctions and our secondary sanctions against trade in coordination with Europe, replacing the UN sanctions, snapping them back, and restoring the arms embargo that lifted in 2020 and prevent the missile embargo from expiring in October, holding Iran to account at the IAEA, where the agency is investigating safeguards breaches, and also taking careful action inside Iran to assist protesters to succeed in their aim of establishing representative governance. I'm sure we'll get to all of this more, um, but I think it's safe to say that the Biden administration is not shifting to a comprehensive strategy. They're pursuing something like a holding pattern or a pressure light strategy uh, because they've always thought that maximum pressure doesn't work. The problem is this gives Iran a lot more time and space to contemplate dashing for atomic weapons. And with a Supreme Leader aging, he may believe that now is the time to secure his legacy and his regime for the future. Thank you. Um, I was going to say in a moment of uh, shameless uh, self-promotion, uh, this is our this is our paper on Plan B. And uh, Andrew, if you'd like to mention yours, I'd, I'd be happy to uh, have the audience be aware of uh, where they can find your paper and the name of it. Ours is called the Biden Administration Plan Will Work Time for Plan B. Uh, this was put out by Jim. And I in December. This is available, obviously, obviously online. Do you have your paper available right there? Any chance, Andrea? Yeah, it's just, it's actually on the, the main page of FDB. It's a comprehensive Iran strategy, and it has recommendations for each agency of U.S. government and steps they should take to counter the threat. Thank you. Jim, what about uh, Iran supports and terror ambassadors? Okay. Uh, I think it's uh, safe to say that in the coming year, Iran's Islamist dictatorship will continue to pose multiple threats to the U.S. and its allies, and at the forefront uh, of these threats is, is uh, of these threats is likely to be terrorism, either directly applied uh, by uh, Iran or indirectly uh, applied through Tehran's uh, many proxy groups. And I say this not just because Iran has a long history of supporting terrorism since its 1979 uh, revolution, um, and which stood up a totalitarian Islamist regime that routinely used terrorism to seize power and maintain itself in power. But also, I argue that uh, Iran's terrorist threat is increasing because the capabilities of Iran's proxy groups uh, have increased greatly in the last few years, uh, and uh, the regime itself faces an existential uh, crisis. Uh, and I believe that it fears that this uh, massive popular rebellions that has swept Iran uh, could become a, a successful revolution. And this threat to the regime's survival, I believe, will give it uh, increased motivation to foment a crisis with Iran's foreign adversaries, not only to uh, distract attention from the regime's crimes against its own people, but also perhaps I think the regime hopes it could rally Iranians around the flag uh, against foreign enemies. Uh, in 
since the death of Masa Amin in September, uh, ostensibly because of Bad Ijab at the hands of morality police, uh, the regime has been stunned by over 2,000 uh, anti-government protests uh, that have occurred all across Iran and that have called uh, for the overthrow of the regime and death to the dictator. Uh, in response, the regime has dug in its heels, it's doubled down on repression, uh, and rejected demands for meaningful uh, reform. Uh, the internal security forces have killed more than 500 people. Uh, the state has executed four protesters that allegedly killed uh, security forces, has strung up their bodies on cranes and left them hanging in order to intimidate protesters and deter uh, future protests. More than 100 protesters now are at risk of, of being uh, executed. And uh, these uh, recent executions have uh, reduced pressure on the regime. The protests have uh, slowed, although they continue. Uh, the, the, the pace outside uh, of the Sunni areas has slowed, but in areas predominantly inhabited by uh, Sunni uh, Iranians. Uh, th those protests have been very intense, particularly in uh, Kurdish, Baluch, and uh, Arab areas, uh, where those groups are double, doubly discriminated against, not only as ethnic minorities, but as a religious Sunni minority, uh, persecuted, I would argue, by a Shia uh, Persian state. Uh, protesters have altered their strategy. They, uh, they play a, a more of a cat and mouse game. Uh, in, they encourage smaller and more localized protests that are less risky for the participants. Though uh, they're leaderless, decentralized and dispersed. And these are all factors that give the protesters better chance of avoiding arrests, uh, jailing, uh, torture, and execution. But unfortunately, these are also factors uh, that uh, make it unlikely that the regime will be overthrown, at least in the coming year. Uh, yet, the protests have been remarkably persistent, with security services so far unable uh, to end these protests, as they have done in previous rounds. Uh, the regime, incapable of reforming itself, has fallen back on its strong suit. Uh, that's state terrorism uh, to intimidate the domestic opposition. This may work in the short run, but I doubt it will work in the long run against an, uh, an up upcoming generation that is fed up uh, with the the corruption, the repression, and the social controls imposed uh, by uh, this dictatorship. Uh, the persistent waves of protests have eroded away what uh, little legitimacy uh, remains uh, to the regime. So although the regime is unlikely to implode, it now faces, I think, the greatest threat to its survival since uh, it gained power in 1970. And this is why I say there's a growing danger that Iran will trigger a crisis to distract its people. Uh, the regime has already set the stage for such a strategy. 
by denouncing protesters as treasonous mercenaries of Iran's foreign enemies, uh, specifically the U.S., Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia. Indeed, Iran is already engaged in a shadow war against these countries using an extensive network of proxies and terrorist groups to orchestrate attacks against all three of these countries. The Revolutionary Guards have cultivated or created a broad spectrum of more than 30 proxy and terrorist groups to do their bidding. And uh, these, some of these groups continue to attack uh, U.S. troops in Syria. Just last Friday, there was another drone attack on a, a small U.S. base in eastern Syria that wounded two Syrian fighters aligned with the U.S. Uh, sooner or later, I think an American uh, is likely to be killed in one of these attacks. And then uh, I think the Biden administration uh, will be compelled finally to take some kind of action. Uh, Iran continues to support attacks against Israel from proxies in Gaza, Lebanon, and Syria, and attacks against Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates from proxies in Iraq and Yemen. Iraq, uh, Iran has launched uh, artillery and drone attacks uh, against Iranian Kurdish groups that have taken refuge in uh, the Kurdish areas of northern Iraq, and Iran may well be tempted to uh, intervene on the ground there, as Turkey has in the western part of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. Such an aggressive policy would be entirely consistent with Iran's history. Uh, since the 1979 revolution, uh, these uh, Islamist revolutionaries have used terrorism to seize power, to maintain power against domestic adversaries, and to undermine the power of foreign adversaries. Indeed, it was an act of terrorism, uh, taking hostage U.S. diplomats in Tehran in 1979 that allowed the uh, Islamists to outflank uh, left-wing and secular revolutionaries and overthrow the Barzagan provisional government. Uh, Iran's strenuous attempts to export its revolution failed in part because uh, only about 15% of the Muslim world uh, is Shia. Uh, most uh, Orthodox are Sunni. Uh, that naturally limited the appeal of Iran's uh, radical Shia brand of uh, Islamism. Uh, but unlike its failed efforts to export revolution, Iran's efforts to export terrorism have paid off in a big way, particularly in Lebanon, where Shia Lebanese formed uh, the largest single group of 17 ethnic and uh, sectarian uh, groups. Iran created, financed, and armed uh, and trained Hezbollah, the party of God, which it uses as a surrogate to attack its enemies, including the U.S. and France, which had tilted uh, against Iran in the Iran-Iraq war and were involved in Lebanon in the 1980s in the multinational uh, peacekeeping force. Hezbollah, at the direction of uh, Iran, attacked the U.S. Marine barracks and killed 241 U.S. servicemen. In October 1983, that same day, uh, they bombed, uh, the truck bombed uh, a French uh, paratroop headquarters and killed 58 French. Uh, soldiers. Hezbollah also was responsible for the uh, bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut and the Embassy Annex. They took 15 American hostages, which, uh, 
which advanced Iran's interests by leading uh, the Reagan administration to enter the Iran concert crisis in which uh, uh, arms were traded for hostages. Uh, I think before 9-11, Hezbollah uh, had more American blood in on, on its hands than any other terrorist group. Uh, and today, Hezbollah has metastasized far beyond Lebanon, first to regional targets in the Middle East, and now it's a truly global terrorist threat backed by Iran that draws financial logistical support from the Lebanese Shia diaspora in the Middle East, in Europe, uh, North America, South America, and Africa. Uh, Hezbollah has a long record of terrorism against the U.S., Israel, Saudi Arabia, and other Arab states that are opposed to Iran. Uh, and Iran may activate uh, Hezbollah to do its dirty work as it did in Lebanon in the 1980s and in Syria in the past decade. Or uh, Iran can use other proxy groups, such as the estimated 120,000 fighters that belong to radical Shia militias in Iraq that have pledged allegiance to Iran's supreme leader. This is a major threat. Uh, the Pentagon uh, estimates that these groups killed more than 600 U.S. soldiers in Iraq between 2003 and 2011. Uh, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, uh, have deployed thousands of these Iraqi fighters uh, to prop up the Assad regime in, in Syria, along with Hezbollah a militias and militias recruited from uh, Afghan and Pakistani uh, Shia. Uh, Iran also is training to equip the Houthi rebels on Sarala, which uh, every day looks more and more like Hezbollah uh, in Yemen. Uh, and they overthrew the Yemeni government and are fighting a Saudi-led coalition in Yemen's uh, brutal civil war. Iran also supports Palestinian terrorist groups such as Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. It smuggled increasingly sophisticated rockets, missiles, and drones to these groups, uh, and Hezbollah to be used against Israel. And Hezbollah alone has an estimated 130,000 rockets and missiles uh, that could potentially aim at Israel. And, and that's more than all of the European members of NATO combined. So this is, this is no small threat. In addition to the military threat, uh, to U.S. Uh, forces and allies in the Middle East. The FBI has warned that Hezbollah support cells inside the United States, which have operated for decades, could also be used in terrorist attacks. And the same is true in Europe. Both Iran and Hezbollah remain committed to avenging the death of uh, General Qasem Soleimani, who was the uh, leader of the Quds Force, the Jerusalem Force, the, the Special Forces arm of the Revolutionary Guards that are uh, charged with exporting Iran's revolution and exporting terrorism. Uh, Soleimani was killed in a January 2020 drone strike in Iraq. Uh, and this past August, uh, Iran was caught red-handed trying uh, to take vengeance for that attack by assassinating former National Security Advisor John Bolton. An Iran-based member of the Revolutionary Guards was charged with attempting to arrange Bolton's murder in uh, Washington, D.C. Iran has also been linked to assassination threats against former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, 
former Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and former State Department Iran coordinator, uh, Brian Hook. Yet the Biden administration remains remarkably complacent about this threat and, and other threats posed by Iran. And I would also point to a very curious uh, attack, or to me, not so curious attack on the author Salman Rushdie last year. And the mainstream media uh, reports that the motives of Rushdie's attacker, Hadi Matah, a U.S. citizen of Lebanese descent, uh, were unknown. Uh, this came despite uh, the decades-long Iranian campaign to murder Rushdie and Matar's own admission and clear evidence that he's a follower of the Supreme Leader and an ardent supporter of Hezbollah. Matter's uh, profile in Facebook uh, includes a photograph of Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of Iran's uh, Islamist revolution, who issued the so-called fatwa or religious edict against Rushdie in 1989. Matar's fake New Jersey driver's license combined the names of two famous Hezbollah leaders, which is another indication of his motivation, if anyone needs to find it. And according to his mother, uh, Matar uh, was reportedly radicalized after a 2018 visit to Lebanon to uh, family's ancestral village uh, in Yerun, uh, which is a prominent Hezbollah stronghold. And regardless of whether uh, evidence surfaces of a direct connection uh, between Hadi Madar and Iran's regime, I think uh, it's, it's likely at least there's a connection to Hezbollah. Uh, but the crux of the matter is that Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa against Rushdie is emblematic of the threat posed by Iran's theocratic regime to the U.S. and to the world. Uh, this fatwa was a call to commit a religious sanction murder. It represents not just a threat to one man, but a threat to freedom, to freedom of thought, uh, the rule of law, and the international system as a whole. And it's an integral part of Iran's efforts to export its revolution uh, and these efforts are enshrined in Iran's constitution. So the bottom line is that uh, Iran's radical Islamist regime has developed over decades a potent killing machine run by the Revolutionary Guards for eliminating the regime's uh, opponents at home and abroad. And I think in the coming year, we're going to see more terrorism emanating from Tehran as the slow motion uh, nuclear crisis uh, heats up. And let me Past Peter Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Um, let me say a few words about the, the blossoming Russia-Iran security relationship. While it's relatively secretive, um, it seems to be quite serious from what we can see on the outside in the open space. Indeed, in December, CIA Director Burns uh, said that uh, the two of them are, they're seeing the beginnings of a full-fledged defense partnership. Uh, considering the international policies of, of these two countries and their less than friendly views in the United States, that's uh, very troubling. Unfortunately, Moscow and Tehran have some commonalities and common interests and have reasons to cooperate with one another. I don't think they're natural allies, quite frankly, but they seem to be willing to each other to, for their own objectives. Of course, they're anti-West and they're anti-American. Both are largely politically and economically isolated due to their economic and international policies. They both have economic problems at home with their economies. Both are under sanctions and they need partners to help them evade those sanctions. 
Uh, they both have concerns about Sunni extremism, but I am going to ask Jim about uh, Iran's relationship with Al-Qaeda. Um, they're both major energy producers, as we know, uh, and they have interest in energy markets. Um, Iran, Russia has sold Iran weapons for many, many years, including advanced weapons, aircraft, S-300, air defense system. Uh, and if you remember, thinking back quite a number of years now, maybe I'm getting close to 30 years, that um, Russia began building Iran's first nuclear reactor, Bushehr, which is now which is now online. Of course, they have a, a common relationship and common interest in what happens in, in Syria, as we've seen over the last uh, the last uh, several years. But of course, the war in Ukraine has pushed them closer. Uh, as you know, uh, Iran is providing uh, combat drones uh, to Russia for use in. I don't know the number of drones. The numbers are out there, but I'm sure it's, it's in the hundreds. Uh, some of these are strike recce drones or drones for ISR, for intelligence collection. Others are loitering munitions, um, but they're, they're having an effect on the, on the conflict. Uh, the Iranians are also providing training to the Russians on these drones, and there's been talk of a joint production line of drones at some point in the future. These drones, of course, are increasing the capabilities and lethality of Russian forces and, um, and the bloodshed in Ukraine. Uh, arguably, these drones could be a factor for long, a nearly year-long war. Think about it. I guess next month will be a one-year anniversary of the beginning of that war, late February. Um, Iran is clearly willing to attempt to expand its influence beyond the Middle East with its involvement uh, with Russia. Uh, you may have also seen that Iran has a couple of ships on a world cruise right now. I think they're they're in Argentina. I don't think they really have that capability for power projection, but it is it is interesting and it is an interesting signal to the rest of us. Um, and then, of course, there are reports that um, and I'm not aware that any of these have been transferred yet of Iran transferring short range ballistic missiles uh, to Russia as well, such as the Fokker and Zolpidar missiles. Um, but in my mind, the thing I've been thinking about a little bit is what is Iran going to get in return for their support for Russia? We know what Russia is, we know what Russia is getting. Uh, while details are scant in the public uh, space, Iran will likely get some sort of hard currency revenue uh, for the provision of arms to Russia. This will certainly allow for more Iranian military adventurism. Uh, it'll help fund its nuclear and missile programs that Andrea talked about. Um, it'll support its proxies in places like Yemen and Iraq and terrorist allies. Mike has been likely to get support and has gotten support from Russia in international institutions. That would include the UN, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, and maybe in future negotiations that might involve the Joint Transit Plan of Action, but you don't know what the future is. If you remember, Russia is party um, to that uh, agreement along with China. I think Iran will also benefit significantly from the operational feedback it gets from the performance of its weapons in Ukraine. How they perform, if they do, if they have problems with this, how they're dealing against countermeasures, and that will help Iran improve those improve those weapons over time. Like others, such as China, will also learn about the use of missiles in modern warfare from Russia. Russia may be willing to, at some point, share their lessons learned from this uh, this conflict in Ukraine, and that would certainly, since Iran depends so much on their, their missile arsenal, which is the biggest in the Middle East, which I think they're saying is about 3,000 ballistic missiles. I don't know how many cruise missiles they've had. I've never seen a, what I consider to be a reliable number on the number of cruise missiles, but they have 3,000 uh, ballistic missiles, and that's really part of their power projection. Um, they will be watching this very closely since they may, they are currently, through their proxies, uh, using, using these missiles. Um, Iran is also very interested in getting Russian weapons and 
defense technologies. I think some of the possible weapons that have been talked about are Su-35s, the, the flanker aircraft, an air superiority aircraft, um, a fourth generation, a four plus plus generation aircraft. Uh, there are rumors that the Iranians have actually been training in Russia on the, on the, uh, on the Su-35, and that uh, two squadrons or about 24 aircraft will arrive this spring, including maybe as early as, as March. Um, it's not clear to me who will get those aircraft, whether it be the Iranian Air Force or the IRGC, but my sense is it'll probably go to the Iranian Air Force since they run and uh, maintain most of the other advanced Russian aircraft, including those that left Iraq during the, during the war. I think uh, Iran is also interested in the S-400 air defense system, which is a very highly capable Russian air defense system. They already have the S-300, uh, and if this would certainly improve their capability against uh, any there's talk of warships and submarines, and of course, the Russians transferred back, I guess, in the 1990s, uh, some Kilo-class diesel submarines to, to the Iranians. Uh, but it's possible that the Iranians may be interested in Russian warships and submarines as well. Of course, there's so many other technologies, too. Of course, you have to wonder at this point, you know, we talk about these systems, whether Russia really is willing to transfer or sell these systems while they're at war in, in Ukraine. Um, the 24 uh, Sioux. 35 aircraft, I understand, are from a failed sale to Egypt. Um, so they're available. They're probably export models. So they're probably not the ones that the Russian Air Force would use, although they certainly could. But you have to wonder uh, what Russia is willing to transfer considering they're, they're, they're fighting right now uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, another interesting thing, I think, in the relationship as well, is that there are reports that the, the Russians have transferred captured Western uh, weapon systems technology to Iran for its, uh, for its exploitation. And the Iranians are well known for their ability to reverse engineer um, reverse engineer complex complex weapon systems. Another area they might see help from Russia is in, in cyber capabilities. As we know, Iran is already very, very capable. Uh, but Russia, I think, is probably more capable. And there's a possibility that the Iranians may want some sort of help uh, from the Russians in improving their offensive capabilities or their defensive capabilities on computer network operations, or perhaps they even might work, work together. What about missiles? Uh, this is something uh, we certainly um, have to think about. Iran is obviously very capable. They've improved the accuracy and lethality of their, of their ballistic missiles uh, so far. But what about long-range missiles, including intercontinental ballistic missiles? I mean, the Iranians for many, many years has been have been developing, I believe, long-range missile systems under the cover of their space program. I mean, it's a, it's a well-known fact that if you, uh, the technology of a space launch vehicle and an ICBM are very, very similar. Uh, that if you can put a, a good-sized satellite into space, you can also put a warhead anywhere on the Earth's planet. So the Iranians have been relying actually on the Russians to put up some of their satellites, but the Iranians have been working on developing this capability themselves, and they're using, saying that this is basically a peaceful um, space program. So would the Russians know ICBMs, um, certainly. Uh, would they be willing to help the Iranians um, in, this, uh, in this area? And of course, last but not least, uh, a major concern is would, any, would the Russians give any assistance to the Iranian nuclear program? Uh, obviously, the Russians, uh, as the, the, uh, the country with the, the same the large nuclear arsenal and many, many years of experience uh, with nuclear weapons could certainly help the Iranians. And I think we've seen over the years in proliferation circles uh, that outside assistance can be key um, to changing the pace and rapidity of the development of a, of a, nuclear, of a nuclear program. 
and obviously Russians have the scientific and technical capabilities to help Ukrainians in this, uh, this area. Of course, Russia's going to have to think long and hard about any of these transfers, uh, especially on some of these other things such as missiles and, and, nuclear, and nuclear weapons. Um, but it's something that we have to be, we have to guard against, um, especially considering the, the, uh, the state of, uh, of Western Russian relations uh, right now. And there are implications to this defense relationship besides the specifics that I mentioned. In general, I think this means more problems for American and Western foreign policy. Uh, it could advance Iran's agenda to dominate the region and threaten U.S. allies, friends, and partners. Uh, it could help Iran better support its allies and proxies in advancing Iranian in interests. It'll become more difficult as they work together. It'll become more difficult to isolate them politically and economically as they work together in this globalized economy. Um, it could mean a more modernized Iranian IRGC and Iranian conventional military. Uh, and this would mean that Iran would be more capable to defend itself from attack, such as its defending its nuclear program, and perhaps encourage more international adventures in places like Syria, Yemen, and the Persian Gulf. So none of this is, none of this is uh, good news. With that, uh, we're going to open it up to open it up to questions that we've taken from the audience. We also can take them online. I think I'm going to use um, the moderator's prerogative to pose a question to Andrea and Jim first, if that's, if that's all right. And then we'll move on to audience questions, like I said, either here in in the Clough Center or um, or online. So, uh, Andrea, um, you know, what is why is Iran delaying? Um, what is what is preventing them from from moving forward? What is their strategic intent with their nuclear program? I mean, if it walks like a duck and, and quacks like a duck, it's usually a duck. But um, and despite their denials, I mean, what's preventing them from just moving forward um, like North Korea did and actually? Um, testing a nuclear weapon? Is it technical? Is it a negotiating strategy? What's, what do you think they're, they're getting Well, I can speculate. I, I think it's mostly a political decision, but they, they still may have technical hurdles. Um, with North Korea, certainly strategic neglect in our policy led them to, to go ahead. And so we don't want Iran to have that same mentality. And we don't also want to think that it's a foregone conclusion that they will go forward and that there's really nothing we can do about it. Um, I think one of the things that's missing in deterring them from going forward is a credible U.S. military threat. Uh, we know that the, the regime pays attention. Um, so the, the Juniper Oak exercises between the U.S. and Israel going on right now in the Mediterranean are, are critical to showcase the type of uh, bombing campaign that we could conduct if needed be against an Iranian breakout. We need to also talk about a willingness to use force. Um, we don't want to look to the example of U.S. <clears throat> invading Iraq as an illustrious foreign policy achievement, but it did have an interesting side effect of dissuading the Iranian regime from pursuing its original goal of building five nuclear weapons by 2003. So they shelved the program to actually build the weapons. Um, they didn't, didn't abandon the work altogether, as far as we can tell from the Mossad seized documents from Tehran um, on Iran's nuclear weapons program. Uh, and I'm not sure that the Iranians believe that we would use a military option if, if they chose to break out. Um, I'm not sure they believe that President Biden wants to be entangled in another conflict in the Middle East. Uh, but if he does... He, if he does want to make this clear, he needs to continue exercises like the ones going on. 
They're all domain. They involve land, air, sea, space capabilities. Um, they showcase what kind of uh, effort we would be prepared to, to take out, to, to carry out. And uh, I think from what I understand, it's a qualitative improvement in the scale and the scope of this exercise over past exercises. Um, they're using lots of different fighters and bombers, live munitions. They're showing how they can suppress air defenses, uh, cyber efforts, lots of different efforts to, to signal preparedness. So I think um, also if we keep the, the door open to sanctions relief and uh, the expiring nuclear accord, if we don't resume some sort of maximum pressure effort, then Iran's calculus could shift to one like North Korea that they can just go ahead and go forward and they won't be stopped. So why bother waiting? Do you have any questions about their strategic intent of becoming a nuclear weapon state? Sorry, could you repeat that? Okay. Yes. Do you have any question in your mind that their intent is to become a nuclear weapon state? I don't think they've made the decision. And I think we, we still have lots of time, well, not lots, but you know, months, maybe years, to deter them from making that kind of decision. So the the trick is to get from a nuclear weapons program to actually making the nuclear weapons. And that's a big jump. You know, they, they have to stand the chance that they'll be bombed. They have to believe that that's a credible threat. So uh, we do have to deter them from going forward. And the whole point of making a credible military threat is so you don't have to use it. So we don't want to think that they for sure will go forward. We want to make the costs too high for them to do so. Jim, what, what is uh, Iran's relationship with Al-Qaeda? I mean, the talk after Zawahiri was, was killed, there's talk that the Sayyid al-Adel, who's been in Iran forever, I think, um, might become the new leader of Al-Qaeda. They said he's under house arrest and things along these lines, um, but he's been clearly, clearly there. I mean, what is their relationship with Al-Qaeda? And, and, you know, what is their relationship with the I would say uh, we talk about their, you know, their concerns about Sunni extremism, right? Right. Yeah. There's no love lost between Iran, the Taliban. They almost went to war uh, uh, in the late 1990s when the Taliban massacred, I believe it was 11 Iranian Revolutionary Guards that, claimed that were diplomats on the side. Uh, and, and, you know, they, you have the Sunni Shia, different religious differences. You have compounded by the ideological differences. Uh, and I think those differences are even more complex and convoluted when you talk about Iran's relationship with Al-Qaeda. Uh, I think they're frenemies in the sense that they have in the past cooperated against common enemies. Uh, if you look at the 9-11 Commission report, it recommended that a, a further report be compiled on the nature of these contacts, because there were so many of them in the uh, 1990s when uh, uh, Iran and many Sunni radical uh, extremist groups uh, came together in Sudan, which was essentially the new Lebanon. Uh, and it's be believed that uh, the Sudanese uh, leader uh, kind of chaperoned the meeting between the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, at that point, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda had had a few bombs, uh, but they were nowhere near as big as the, the bomb that 
destroyed the Marine Barracks, uh, which is one of the largest bombs uh, exploded since World War II. Uh, and Iran uh, offered to train uh, and in uh, Al-Qaeda in Hezbollah camps in uh, Lebanon and, and elsewhere. Uh, Al-Qaeda may have been involved in the Hezbollah bombing of the Colbert Towers barracks in Saudi Arabia that killed 19. What do you think the relationship is today? It's, it's very awkward today because they're also uh, struggling against each other for power in places like Syria. Uh, we have the Iranians propping up Assad and uh, Al-Qaeda and other Sunni radicals trying to bring Assad down. Uh, so, you know, both groups, Al-Qaeda and Iran, uh, claimed to be bringing heaven to earth with new Islamist uh, uh, global revolutions, but really you know, all they've done is, is create hell on earth, especially for the Iranian people. I'm often reminded of the uh, Persian proverb, uh, use, another, use another's hand to catch the snake, right? You know, in, terms of, in terms of these groups, especially in their relationship with Taliban and, and, uh, and Al-Qaeda. We have an online question. Why don't we go there first? Nicole, could you read that out to yeah. us? Uh, yeah, so you talked a little bit about the cyber threat, and I have an audience question. Um, is there a cyber warfare threat from Iran, and does Iran pose a threat in other dimensions of asymmetric warfare? Yeah, I would say uh, Iran definitely poses a uh, growing cyber threat. Uh, Iran has stood up uh, a, a cyber army that has uh, launched many attacks against not only the U.S., but against Israel. Uh, uh, an attack wiped, wiped out uh, the Saudi Aramco's computer system uh, and also a computer system in Qatar that dealt with uh, natural gas. Uh, the, uh, the Iranian hackers have uh, penetrated the computer network in uh, New York and then try to uh, infiltrate the system in Boston Children's Hospital, which the FBI director uh, made, of note, uh, uh, made a note of when he spoke in Boston, I think it was two years ago, or maybe last year. Uh, so th they are out there, and uh, I think that is a growing threat. If we have any questions in the audience, if you raise your hand, uh, we'll bring you a microphone. Um, if not, we'll go back to... We'll go back to, uh, do we have another online question? Uh, yeah, Manny. Okay. Well, actually, let me let me try one here. We'll, we'll go back. I, I wanted to ask Andrea, where is Iran on, on warhead development, on really you know fashioning, uh, weaponizing uh, all this work they've done in, in the nuclear field? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think they've made quite a bit of progress since 2003. Um, you know, they've They've been able to launch into space, so they have, they're developing ICBM-type technology. And we don't know how well they're able to integrate a warhead into the missile. That would all be highly secret. Uh, so far, intelligence agencies haven't uh, detected progress or they haven't been able to find it. So uh, unfortunately, we just don't know a lot about the missile integration effort. But I think we can speculate that uh, they would be able to get there within a year or two from having a workable nuclear device. That's still the estimate of governments right now. Okay. Thank you. Nicole? Uh, 
Uh, I have another question for Dr. Brooks on oh. how much and what types of assistance do you think we, the United States will provide the Israelis if they decide to move on the various locations of their country? Well, that's a big. That's a big. That's a big question. Um, obviously, the United States has a tremendous interest in uh, has a tremendous interest in what happens with the Iranian nuclear program. It's obviously a great threat to to Israel. Uh, there's concerns about cascading proliferation in the region. If Iran became a nuclear weapon state, what would other states do? Um, it's not quite clear, uh, but I think there are a number that might be interested in in developing their own nuclear weapons, uh, which would include Saudi Arabia, perhaps even perhaps even Turkey. Um, but obviously, the United States would, um, would, depending on the situation. So I hate to answer hypotheticals, uh, but I think we share um, the, the trajectory of the Iranian nuclear program. I mean, I, I maybe differ. I think Andrea's answered very well, but I think I, I, I believe that Iran is on the path to become a nuclear weapon state. Um, the question is, can we can we prevent them from doing it? And I'm kind of uh, I'm not quite clear as to why they haven't actually moved to have moved forward. In that, in that situation, I, I would, um, we would depend on, depending on the situation, but I think the United States, if it came to the point where we needed to use military action, that we um, obviously um, may have to take, may have to take that step. Is that, uh, is that something, is that somebody telling me something, or is that somebody trying to, trying to call in here? Jim, can you say a little bit about the relationship with the Taliban? I mean, where's that? Where's, what's Iran doing in Afghanistan? Well, there's no love lost between uh, Shia Iran and the Sunni uh, Taliban. Both of them are supremacist in the sense that uh, they look down on and discriminate against uh, the, the non-sectarian minorities uh, that they rule over. Uh, particularly uh, Taliban uh, historically has had a very hostile relationship to uh, uh, Shia Hazara ethnic minority in central Afghanistan, uh, and the Islamic State even uh, more so. Uh, and this uh, Islamic State uh, province uh, that is uh, based in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and claims India. Um, has attacked not only uh, Taliban forces, but uh, just uh, ruthlessly attacked Shia uh, civilians. Uh, and, uh, I think that's part of the problem of uh, Islamist extremist groups that uh, claim a direct pipeline to God, and therefore they, they think that they can ruthlessly use any means to advance that end. When they come up against each other, I think the warfare and the crimes against civilians are even uh, more horrific. Andrew, what do you do? You think that the Russians will help the Iranians with their nuclear or missile program, especially their long range? Yeah, that's, that's an important question. We were talking about that. Um, I think. It's not off the table. We know that former Soviet nuclear weapons experts assisted Iran's nuclear weaponization effort years ago. Uh, it's unclear whether that help was sanctioned or blessed by the Russian state, if they knew about it or looked the other way. Um, Russia is historically not seen an Iranian nuclear weapon as in its strategic interest, but things may have changed now that it's in a proxy war again with the West. Moscow might think that assisting Iran is a fair trade. 
uh, for arms and missiles drones. And if Tehran needs help on weaponization or missile delivery, uh, Russia may be little downside of doing so. It's already under such extreme penalties. Um, and Moscow may think that it would focus the West's attention elsewhere if Iran was, were to go for nuclear weapons, detract from the war effort in Ukraine. Um, so we really want our intelligence folks and those of our partners and allies to be on top of this, to be looking for anything, uh, any kind of cooperation or assistance, people going to Iran to, to assist. Um, and we would want to try to disrupt that uh, using any covert means that we can. You know, if they're successful, we probably won't know about it. But um, it, all in all, that would be a win. What do you think? I touched upon this. Um, I touched upon this. What do you think the Middle East would look like in five to ten years if Iran actually possibly successful? Well, I think it, we don't have to think too imaginably, imaginatively anymore about what Iran would be like if it had the freedom to operate with a nuclear deterrent. So we see how the West has been reticent to arm uh, Ukraine with with the wrong weapons that will provoke Putin into using nuclear weapons or lead uh, to nuclear escalation or even make him lose the war too decisively. Uh, we've been overly risk averse throughout that because of the, the risk of escalation. So I don't see any reason why Iran would not operate the same way under the same mentality. Um, if it has a nuclear deterrent, it may be more likely to invade territories of its neighbors or use proxies to cause more trouble. Um, and then threaten nuclear use if anyone tries to get involved or push back. Um, so, you know, what happens if Iranian proxies start hostilities with Israel or another one of our partners? Are we going to not get involved because we will fear becoming involved in a nuclear escalation? And as you mentioned, I think we would see the Saudis, the Turks, perhaps the Emiratis and the Egyptians moving forward with acquiring uh, uranium enrichment, advanced nuclear capabilities. And then we have a very unstable region, even more so, and plenty of potential for miscalculation. Do we have another online question? Yeah, so the last question is, do you expect a major crisis with Iran this year, and what would that look like as well? I'll ask both of our panelists, uh, do you think major crisis this year um, coming from Iran? Once you start first, Jim, then we'll go to him. Okay, yeah, I, I'd be surprised if there wasn't a major crisis this year. Uh, I kind of expected one last year, uh, but I think Iran uh, slowed its uh, its incremental violations of the JCPOA in order to tamp down uh, that. But it's I think it's just a matter of time uh, this year uh, because the. The margin of error is, is getting uh, much more narrow. And uh, if Iran continues on this collision course, then I would expect that Israel would take action. And you know, I think that's one reason in, in our paper uh, we recommended uh, trying to upgrade Israeli deterrence against an Iranian nuclear breakout by uh, providing uh, Uncombustor bombs and precision-guided munitions and aerial uh, uh, aerial refueling tankers, because uh, although Iran may doubt that the Biden administration uh, would attack its uh, illicit nuclear program, I don't think it'll doubt that Israel will do that. So that could increase deterrence, and I think 
you know, the way to go is increase deterrence of a breakout, not reward Iran with sanctions relief for perhaps only temporarily uh, delaying a breakout. Andrew, do you think we're going to have a crisis this year? Especially over the nuclear, over the nuclear issue, what do you, what do you, what do you I'll give it fifty-fifty odds. Um, I think something we should pay attention to is the uranium clock. So they have enough for six weapons at the moment. Um, they're going to break out. They may want to have more. They may want to have at least enough for ten weapons, uh, maybe more. So if they're going to run the risk that their program gets bombed, they want to probably have enough stockpiled for a, a small nuclear arsenal. So I'll, I'll be a um, a little more optimistic and hope that we have some time still to deter and delay their program. Well, we've run out of time. Thanks so much to Andrea and Jim um, and for a very rich discussion today and given us a lot to think about. I wish I could find some good news in all that we've, uh, we've talked about through today. Also, thanks to the audience for joining us here in the Club Center at Heritage and, and online. And with that, today's event is concluded. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.